Every play, every musical, begins with some writer putting words on a page. Hello, and welcome to Stagecraft, the Broadway radio podcast that talks to playwrights and musical book writers about the shows they've created. My name is Jan Simpson. My guest this week is Joseph Dougherty, who has written Chester Bailey, a lovely two-character play that explores the power of the stories that we tell ourselves to get ourselves through life. Its Irish reproduction stars Ephraim Burney and his father, the Tony-winning actor Reed Burney, in what sounds like a gimmick but truly isn't. The show is now playing at the Irish Rep through November 20th. Hello, Joseph Dougherty. Welcome to Broadway Radio. Thank you so much for uh, having me here. We usually start these conversations with a brief description of the play. So would you tell listeners what Chester Bailey is about? Okay. <laughs> I, I, think the, I think the standard line, basically, if I could do it in 30 seconds, I wouldn't have written the play. It, Chester Bailey is set in, uh, in a stateside hospital uh, at the end of the Second World War. And it is concerned with the relationship between a young man who's been catastrophically injured uh, in an accident at the Brooklyn Navy Yards and uh, uh, a therapist who's uh, put in charge of helping him. The issue is not making him better because that's impossible, but the young man seems to be in complete denial about the life-changing injuries he's experienced. And it's kind of watching these two men get to know each other. Boy, that sounds rather flat. Um, it's about the relationship between a doctor and his patient. It's also about the nature of imagination and what we choose to remember. Where did you get the idea for the play? Well, I, I used to have a whole set of glib responses. Uh, I've exchanged them now for a new set of glib responses. <laughs> I, I will say that, that the idea of, of writing this play the way that it's written. It was a decision on my part to challenge my own language, to, to push myself and to push my language as far as I could in directions that I might not have done that done before. I was, was coming off of a, doing a lot of television work, which is very compressed and very contracted. And I wanted to see what would happen if I were to just drop the restraints and just do the language I wanted to do. And I, I wanted to go in two directions. So you have a doctor in his 50s who has one set of vocabulary, you know, which is very efficient, and, and basically a 20-year-old kid from Brooklyn uh, who's as articulate in his own way as, as the doctor is. The seed that the crystal of the play is built around is uh, my wife, who I have to remember that she showed me the article, or else she'll be very angry. <laughs> there, was a, there was a piece in the newspaper about a court case in which someone with devastating, uh, devastating injuries, similar to the ones that uh, Chester experiences in play, uh, where that person was going through a lawsuit, and at the end of the article it said, the patient is in denial of her injuries. Hmm. And I wondered what you'd have to do to be in denial of those kind of injuries. So it was sort of figuring out for myself what I thought the mind might do. And I said it in the end of the war, because I didn't want to deal with modern science. I didn't want to deal with modern medicine. And I certainly didn't want to deal with modern communication. No cell phones, no internet. You have to leave a phone mess for someone or go knock on their door if you wanted to talk to them. 
the way you tell the story is a little unusual. About half of the play is done in monologues, but there are also scenes between uh, the two characters, and this is a two-character play. Could you talk a little bit about how you came up with that structure? Uh, Actually, part of it is not being concerned about it having a conventional structure. If you look at it in its own way, it's weirdly linear. I wanted to give the audience a tremendous amount of information about these two characters before we put them in the room together. And I like the idea that when it starts, you might not know how their lives will cross. Uh, And it had a lot to do with the fact that how far can I push the language? How far can I go with these two people talking about their lives and talking about where they are and talking about what they're experiencing and how can I put that picture? It's a lot about imagination. It's about how much can I test the imagination of an audience who are listening and watching two actors on stage to build, to build a world. And there was the evidence so far is that they will trust the play. Uh, Ron Lago Marcino, who's directed every production of the play since we started working on it, uh, he and I spent a lot of time worrying about, before the first production, worrying about how an audience would feel seeing this kind of structure. And then when we finally got it up in front of people, they had no problem with it. They just leaned into it. And they wanted to be told a story. Did one character come to you first, or was one easier to write than the other? I enjoyed writing both of them equally. I think they showed up simultaneously. I'm going to give you the coy uh, writer response, which isn't really coy. It just happens to be true. I basically sat around thinking about it until these two guys showed up in the room and started talking to each other. Then I wrote down what they said. I don't think they could have shown up separately. I think they had to show. Someone had to speak to someone, so there had to be two people. In a more conventional play, it would have been focused solely on Chester. But you also give a full backstory, a full life to his doctor, Dr. Cotton. Was that always part of your plan, or did it develop as you worked on the play? I never thought about one of them being more prominent than the other. So they were always treated equally in my mind. I I remember it's very interesting watching this particular production because this one is, is, is so complete. We've been working on it so long and it's come together so well. Uh, I'm hearing things in the play that I was not aware of that I put in, Hmm. um, which kind of startled me. Um, that's a little bit off off from your question. Um, <laughs> That's right. And I know I wanted them to have equally powerful stories. I suppose I'm a little bit more Dr. Carton than, than Chester, because I really don't know if I would have had the tools that Chester has to save himself from what's happened to him. As you mentioned, this play has uh, has had previous productions. Can you talk a bit about how the Irish Rep production came about and if you made changes for it? Irish Rep was aware of the play quite some time ago. Uh, we did do a very small reading just for them. And we've sort of been engaged in this dance of, of availability and, and space and time uh, that suddenly came together very quickly this summer. 
they reached out to us and said, would you, would you like to do it here? And we seized the opportunity. All of the productions have been excellent. I've been happy with all of them. We've been creeping towards New York. We started in San Francisco, then went to West Virginia, and then went to, uh, and to Massachusetts. My fear was that we would overshoot New York and end up in Long Island Sound, but we didn't. <laughs> we were able to actually stay on, on Manhattan. <laughs> there was a lot of rewriting in the first production. There was less rewriting in the second, but not, uh, not a small amount. There was a small amount in Barrington, and we literally were coming into the granular place uh, at Irish Rep, where where Ron and I would, would literally sit down and talk about words and punctuations. Ephraim got cast first. What he brings to Chester is just g- glorious and heartbreaking. And I'm just so pleased that people have noticed the work he's doing. These, these guys have gotten, they just go places. Which is why when we came down to it in, the, in this production, it was really about if I was if I saw something or I heard something that in any way, shape, or form looked like it, they were having trouble. I said, "Let me fix that." So we were. We, I was doing things like changing half a line, and Ron was doing things like slowing half a cross, so that changes that were made in the in the Irish reproduction are very small, but exponentially effective and it's a wonderful small theater uh, I, I was talking to reed and we both agreed that this is probably the best audience experience production uh that the play has had in terms of intimacy mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. referenced a couple of times imagination and the imagination that chester bailey has is crucial to his story what about the human imagination so intrigues you i think it crept i think it crept up on me because the issue uh, about denial was practically in a, on a on a strangely practical level what would a character have to do what would a character have to build for him or herself to retain the fiction that nothing had happened and at the same time accommodate for, for what had happened I, I think it's one of the few things that human beings can be proud of is the fact that we make up stories mm-hmm. for ourselves. And it's how, and the right story can help us through the most amazing times. And we just love narratives. Cotton actually says it in the plays. It says, why, why aren't we investigating what they imagine? Where does it come from? What is its purpose? Why did it feel the need to invent the soul? It's just why were we blessed with this incredible engine of making stuff up? You can kind of go meta about it and take a look at the fact that you've got like 100, about 146 people a night. Imagining with two men on stage pretending to be two other men telling a story that didn't happen and you're getting upset about it and you're laughing and you're crying. And, and sometimes there's a, there's a gas runs through the theater and I'm in the back of the house feeling very proud of myself. And well, you should. You've had a, you. a very successful career in television. Why did you come back to writing a play? Well, it's interesting. It's I kind of said to someone, I said, "Well, I feel like a I feel like a comet with a very wobbly orbit." It <laughs> took me it took me thirty seven years to get back uh, to off Broadway. My television career happened 
because I had a play off-Broadway. This was Digby, yes? This was Digby, and it brought me to the attention of, of Ed Zwick and Marshall Herskovitz and Richard Kramer at 30-something, which was just had just been picked up. And they had a mandate for themselves to look for writers who didn't have a lot of television experience, but that they, they wanted to work with. So Digby's responsible for me going into television. And it was a perfect way for me to do it because 30-something was an astonishing experience. It was really writer-driven. And we had a grand time. And we all thought that was what it was going to be like from then on. And then when the show ended, we found out, no, as a matter of fact, it's really not. So I kind of I, I wandered in the wilderness a little while in television. I, I'm not the first one to make this observation. It's it's difficult to survive financially as a playwright. But if you're if you've got some if you've got some talent, television is a is a way you can have a, a career. And in 1992, I, I wrote the book for my favorite year, which was not particularly embraced by the critical community. Although I liked it. Thank you. I was not fishing. <laughs> I certainly was not fishing because I'm, you know, it goes back a ways. It was, it was, I have to also say, it was the most fantastic creative experience I'd ever had at that point. If you want to know what creativity is all about, work with Lynn Aarons and Steve Flaherty. I mean, for a writer to just kind of like, you know, write three, a three-page monologue for a character and hand it to Lynn and Steve, and hear it sung back to you. Distilled was just an amazing experience. But I, I, I did television for, for a while. The, the last television uh, show I did was one I probably never would have normally done, which was Pretty Little Liars on ABC Family. But again, in the way the, way the fates aligned, I hadn't seen Ron for, I think, 10 years at that point, even though we were working in the same town. And Ron came on to direct, and he'll tell the story this way, and I'm never going to challenge him. He said, and he came up to me one day and says, have you written another play? And he claims I actually had it in my back pocket. I took it out and, and, and showed it to him, and he responded to it. I mean, I had written the play at that time because it was between television uh, jobs. I said, I need, to, I need to do this. I need to remind myself that I do have I do have these muscles and I do have, do have this craft. And Ron, Ron responded to it right away and he showed his ACT and they responded to it right away. And then we did that in 2016 with the first production. I'm glad that serendipity of the two of you reconnecting brought you back and brought this lovely play to us. And I'm going to speak for serious theater goers. We hope you come back again soon. Oh, I, I've spent most of my time going, going around saying, when can I come back? Uh, I, no, I have to tell you, it is my intention. There are now, I, I had a tremendous burst of creativity when, I, when Pretty Little Liars ended. So I've been writing a lot, and, and, and what I've been writing has been for the stage. Great. Great. We're looking forward to seeing it. In the meantime, thank you so much for this play and for talking with us about it. Oh, uh, talking about writing is so much easier than writing. Uh, <laughs> thank you for asking me. And thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back next time and that you'll consider supporting this show and all the other Broadway radio podcasts with a contribution via our Patreon page. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can find the page and some extras at patreon.com slash broadwayradio.